There's no problem too big or small, no issue too hot or cold, and no subject these gentlemen won't talk about. Let's head into the lab to see what they're working to figure out today. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grumbach, and we've got an awesome show for you coming up. This week, Centari and I were joined by Michael Seaver, an executive coach, consultant, and professional speaker. We had a great conversation that went from Michael's personal struggles through depression and divorce to his work in helping people overcome fears that hold them back to the integral role that accountability plays in reaching our goals, and finally, what lies ahead for him and how each of us can better optimize our lives. You can find out more about Michael and what he's working on at michaelssiever.com as well as some other social media which are listed in the show notes and I definitely encourage you to check him out. As always, you can click contact us and we'll get you whatever you need. Thanks as always for listening. Please share us on social media and subscribe to the show if you like what you heard. That's enough about that. Let's go. Well, let's get into it and get down to it. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grumbacher. Joining me as always is Centauri Minor. Hello, folks. Helping us move from awareness to action today and this week is Michael Seaver, executive coach, leadership consultant, professional speaker. Welcome. Thank you, George. Centauri. This should be good. You know what? <laughs> this is the first time I haven't really come up with a great question for Oh, man. <laughs> okay. So let me come up with one on the fly. What was the hardest thing you've done in the past year? Hardest thing I've done in the past year? Um, hardest thing I've done in the past year? Because I know you don't like change. I hate change. Uh, hardest thing I've done in the past year? Probably resigned from my last position. Instead, you know, I love this job, but it's just ultimately I need to change. So that was probably what the hardest thing I've done in the past year. How long did it take to uh, come to that decision, do you think? Well, that's a good question. Um, consciously, probably a few months. Subconsciously, probably a year. Like it, the things have been in my mind, but I didn't think anything of it. And then it just came down to being more thoughtful about, all right, this is actually the change that I need to make. Yeah. And it was hard. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. Of course. <laughs> so, Michael, we appreciate you having, or appreciate you being on the show today. Yeah. And from what Little I know of you, it's been a, a very, very interesting and impactful and busy 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were kind enough to, to share with Centauri and I that one of the things that you've struggled with and overcome is depression. And that's something that impacts, roughly speaking, depending on the numbers, 5 to 10% of people all over the world. Mm-hmm. So... And I can honestly say that for the longest time, I was very, very ignorant of depression. I was a guy that thought, well, why can't people just, you know, fight their way through it and tough it out? So I appreciate you sharing your experience with us. How did, t- tell me about it. Yeah, for sure. And thank you for asking. So back in 2003, uh, I got married. And so September 2003, we get married, uh, moved to Metro Phoenix in December of 2003. And at that point in my life, my ex-wife and I were very, very, very similar people. But as we transitioned to Metro Phoenix and as we took different jobs over the next five years, we began to somewhat separate, right? The persons that we were began to diverge a little bit. So about late 2006, somewhere in 2007, 
we both kind of looked at one another and said, okay, this really isn't going to work out for us. And so we started to make plans about what was life going to look like as we separated and became our own persons and separate our lives. And that threw me into a bit of a depression, never clinically diagnosed, but I've done enough psychological work now to know what I was feeling or how it compares to depression. Uh, so again, never clinically diagnosed, but enough to know that what I felt was something that I wish nobody else would have to feel or go through. Uh, and so through the process, right, it was uh, August of 2008, and my ex-wife and I decided to separate. Um, we then decided to separate assets. We then went through the process of obviously selling our home. And all in the same weekend, I actually started my degree program at the Thunderbird School of Global Management. So in about four or five days, uh, the thing that ended up hitting me the hardest was the stopping of one facet of my life and the beginning of another facet of my life. And so all of that change happening virtually simultaneously just made the feelings that I was having of negativity and loss and wonderment, it made it that much worse because I was even more wondering what is it that I'm going to do next and not know. So thankfully, two things somewhat happened at the same time. So for any of the listeners that are wondering, like, what are some strategies that you can utilize to get away from it? The very first thing that I did was I started volunteering with a local not-for-profit called the First Tee of Phoenix. And I used to love to play a lot of golf. Hmm. And so that was a great way to be able to give back to disadvantaged youth who wanted to learn life skills through the game of golf. So that ended up becoming my strategy of being able to utilize the lessons I was learning through a very tough time and teach them to kids who had it far rougher than I ever did. Right, so it gave me a good balanced perspective, but it also allowed me to mentor some other folks, uh, very young kids in a meaningful way. Uh, so that was so, so helpful. So if you can figure out a place to be able to mentor kids and or get involved with some not-for-profit in your area, it'll mean so much to you as you move forward. Uh, the second thing that happened was that I ended up having a coach at Thunderbird as a, a peer career advisor and as a career advisor, and it was Pam. And Pam was so foundational for me uh, she kind of served as one of those initial persons in my personal board of directors, if you will. And so she allowed me to just vent and just talk through things and allow me to have a, an outlet, right, in a meaningful way. If it wasn't for her, I don't know what I would be doing today because she gave me a very, very distinct lens and window into my unique strengths and the person that I am today that I will always be thankful for her for, right? So by giving back to the community and giving myself a bit of perspective and then having somebody around me that I could just vent to and talk to, was so critical and important as I began my degree program in 2008 and then as I transitioned to things thereafter. Got it. So how long do you think that, that you were suffering from depression? I would say that there was probably an 18 to 24 month time frame through the latter part of 2006, a lot of 2007, and then into 2008 for sure as we were trying to figure that piece out. So I guess probably 24 months, somewhere in there, that I just was really looking for something and I didn't know where to look. But thankfully, a lot of those things happened right around the same time for me with the stoppage of one part of my life and the beginning of another part of my life. So as soon as Thunderbird, we started to pick up a ton of work to do. Uh, we started to work out projects. I traveled to China in 2009. So as these things started to transition, I had more room to grow and become who I am now. And if it wasn't for that, I don't know where I'd be, but I'm very, very thankful for having the capacity to move forward or having a goal to work to or having these other things that were really interesting to me to engage me at a deep level. Well, do you feel like you were aware of it at the time or did it take some years to be away from it to, to understand what was actually happening? Uh, great question. And in, in the moment, I did not know what I was going through. Mm -hmm. and, and that was a very, very difficult thing. And I think we now have through social media and personality assessments and lots of other tools available to us, I think people are much more able to 
uh, whether some in some capacity diagnose themselves or be aware of this. Uh, I certainly didn't have that back then. I just wasn't raised in an environment where those things were talked about openly. And it wasn't until probably 2011, 2012, when I started to really grow and develop my business that I really looked back on it and said, oh my gosh, this is what I was going through because now I'm serving people that are essentially going through the same thing. Well, I think that it's obviously a very fortunate thing that you were able to, to work your way out of it. So many people aren't able to do that. And it's not obvious, but there are so many different kinds of depression and it manifests itself in so many different kinds of ways that for some folks it is um, a, some kind of a medication that is able to help them with their, uh, just get, get through it. Or it sounds like in your case, it was just being able to focus on having new goals, new opportunities, new things to work towards that, that help you get out of it. Yeah. Um, looking back on it, do you think that you would do it differently? Would you have sought professional help or? Yes, and so had I recognized what I was going through, and obviously this was a decade ago, I didn't know, and resources weren't there, the web wasn't quite as big then as it is now. Right, for um, better or for worse. Yeah, for sure, yeah. <laughs> it, so that's the, the place that we're in, is that if I could turn back the clock, I don't necessarily regret anything that I've done because those challenges have definitely helped me to become the man and, and the worker that I am today. But it's also one of those things that if I could have been quote unquote diagnosed a little bit earlier or made aware of where I was, uh, that would have been so incredibly helpful because it's at that point you put a stake in the ground and then you can then begin to have an open dialogue about what are the next steps. But if you don't know, if you're just in a place of wonderment, then you're not in a good place. This is uh, something that uh, people will ask you from time to time when I say you. I mean, I think, I think everybody probably will been asked, what, what do you regret? And I don't know that I necessarily regret a lot one of those things that my bad choices, of which I've made a lot, have helped me to, you know, get to the place where I am today. But maybe that's that's way off base. Do you guys, do you guys feel like you value regret, or rather, do do, do you have regrets? I feel like, um, to your point, it's uh, looking at bad decisions or things that might be put into the regret category and seeing how you learn from it. But I, me personally, I don't think there's anything that. There's nothing that I would say I would want that to completely change because if it didn't happen, I wouldn't know the things that I needed today. So yeah. I, there's no regret in that sense. Right. Yeah. I think as time has progressed and passed, I've moved to a place where I've started to view all situations as win-win. Mm. And that has been a very long learning for me, uh, literally a decade or more. And so I don't necessarily look back at those moments and regret anything. Um, but I think I'm just now to a place in my life as I coach more executives that I can convince them that the most difficult challenges that they're going through historically in their life or that they're going through now, there actually is a lot that they can learn from those scenarios and situations. And if we can pull out the lessons learned, we can redefine a very meaningful existence. So if we can move to a place of being okay with all scenarios are win-win, um, and we can get people to accept that, I think we're going to be in a much better place. Okay. How often does that happen? How so many people are probably saddled with regrets. What could have been? I I should have, would have, could have done this. Do you think that that most? Do you think that a lot of people, if they could get past that and, and move? This is a stupid question because it's probably everybody. But yeah, uh, I think that many folks would um, take action faster if they recognized where they were 
many folks that I interact with are questioning themselves along those lines. Mm -hmm. So it's not a silly question, it's actually something that I find to be very, very valid. I feel that people really do struggle with that. Uh, and there are certain communication styles and preferences that look back on their life and they wish they would have taken more defined action in support of their life's mission, but they just didn't know how to define their life's mission at an appropriate age, so they end up taking a lot of action seeking something when if they would have just done a little bit of reflection kind of at the beginning and invested the time at the beginning, they could have then taken action on things that were very meaningful for them. So they take a shotgun approach versus a rifle or a laser, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. Like yeah. I'm just gonna do things without being focused. Yes. Yeah, certain communication styles, extroverts uh, as a whole, they have a tendency to take action to take action. Introverts have a tendency to not take enough action. Right, so there's a balance between. So my job as a coach is to figure out where do they stand on the extroversion, introversion scale. And if they're extroverts, I have to scale back their activity. But if they're introverts, I have to find unique ways to pull out that extrovert part of them and get them to actually take action. So there's a, there's a spectrum there that exists that you have to think about human behavior in support of their life's mission. One, you just get, get them to take more action. One, you get them to taste less action, but more action in the area that's meaningful for and we'll talk about uh, more of your coaching in a bit, but how receptive are folks to an idea like that? So one, how aware are they uh, if they're an introvert or extrovert or whatever that diagnosis you're doing? And two, how receptive are they to the interventions that you provide? Um, if I'm delivering the message to a large audience, there will be a low volume of acceptance if they can't experience at a very granular level for themselves. Mm. So if I stand on stage in front of a thousand people and deliver a message about what it means to be an extrovert or an introvert, and they haven't done some sort of personality assessment or similar, then they're not going to be able to receive and or absorb the message as well. But if I've done a personality assessment with a person and they can read it and really truly believe in their heart that what's on that piece of paper describes them, the probability of them being open to what I'm asking them to do next is very high. That's interesting. Do you find that when folks take a personality profile that they bring a bias into it? They say, you know what, I'm for sure an extrovert, right? I mean, yes, this, this totally matches me. Or are personality profiles to the point where they can actually cut through that and see the bias is coming? And There are certain personality profiles that can cut through the bias. So the one that I utilize looks at what's referred to as a natural and adapted style, meaning that it assesses how a person is in their most natural state, who they are at home and their being their most authentic self. But then right by its side, it relates how they feel they have to behave in public. Mm. So they're wearing a mask out of Johari's window kind of a thing. Yeah, absolutely. And so this is where we stand is that I can look at these two charts side by side and assess if there's any gap between the one on the left and the one on the right then I know that the person isn't being the most authentic version of themselves in public. And that's where my work begins, is I have to figure out how to get them to behave very naturally in an adapted or an, an uncommon environment for them. So people naturally will walk into any type of personality like that in a relatively resistant manner, and until they actually can read a report or look at it in depth and say, yeah, this really does sound like me or you can ask them a series of questions about their past and connect what's on the piece of paper to an event from their past, then they'll start to buy into it more. Now, thankfully, the assessment that I utilize has a 91% validity rate, hmm. so it's incredibly valid about the person's character and content, which is fantastic. There are others that have less validity that people will look at it and say, well, that doesn't exactly sound like me. Right, so that's why I use the product that I do, just because it has a very, very high validity score. Makes sense. Yes. 
there's a, a, a book that we're probably all familiar with, um, and now I'm going to forget the name of it, I think it was Crucial Conversations, mm-hmm. and they talked about interrogating reality and stepping out from behind ourselves yeah. to actually have real conversations about it. Mm-hmm. And gosh, I think that that must be one of the hardest things yeah. for anybody to do, and certainly myself, I know that the way that I want people to look at me and the way that I really am is not necessarily always, always the same. Yeah, absolutely, and that's where our society places a lot of imposed uh, meanings on a person, right? They drive a specific kind of car, they wear a specific type of clothing, they work at a specific job, they live in a specific part of town, and that automatically distills inferred values onto that person. So we have to think very holistically about who is it that we are deep down inside and how do we parlay that out into the environment? And oftentimes, and you've heard the mantra, fake it till you make it, right? Many of those things have happened. For sure. And we do that in order to fit into a specific club because humans at their core, they want to feel acceptance. They want belonging. Exactly, right? If you go back to Brene Brown's work, she's got great TED Talks and some great books, especially Daring Greatly, uh, really look at the value of vulnerability. And so if you can create a core group of people around you that just allow you to be the most authentic, vulnerable version of yourself, you feel then less of a need to have to portray a certain image in public. But if you don't have that close-knit, really, really tight group of people close by, very, very difficult for you to then be authentic out into your world, your stakeholder group. Do you find a lot of CEOs or the folks that you coach struggle with that? Yes. Yeah, and this 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 stems from some work that Daniel Galati had done out of Harvard back in 06, 07, I think. And he had basically asked a group of retiring CEOs from Fortune 100 companies what are the things that you regret the most, right? And so it was a very, very interesting look at uh, human um, CEOs that basically regret, uh, they wish they wouldn't have worked so hard for money, they wish they would have spent more time with their family, mm-hmm. and they are entrepreneurs, meaning they wish they would have started their own businesses, right? So many of the folks I engage with that work inside corporations, they have developed a lifestyle, either in the corporation or outside of that, that they have to maintain it. They have to maintain the house, the cars, the golden handcuffs. Bingo, right? So that's the that's the tough place that they're in. Is that up until now they've designed a lifestyle and a specific image in the community, and they have to maintain it. So they can't leave and actually do the things that they want to do. But through Gulati's work, what we've learned is that they actually really want to leave and do something unique and new and different. But they've designed a life that won't allow them to. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about uh, the why and your background, but can you tell us a little bit about what made you get into coaching other than having coaching yourself and sure. what that looks like currently? Yeah, thank you. Uh, so I think the reason that it happened was back in 2008, um, Pam gave me the DISC assessment, she gave me the motivators assessment, she gave me the strengths finder. Pam is your Pam was professor. The coach. She was a career coach at Thunderbird at okay. the time. And so she is kind of the catalyst, I think, for a lot of my life as it stands today because she sat me down and looked at these assessments and said, hey, Michael, you've been doing this life here, right? You've worked in your family's business for 12 years and then you ran hotels for four years. Now you're getting an MBA. But what you really need to be doing is running HR departments and or not-for-profits. And so because she sat me down and actually challenged me to look at my communication preferences, what motivated me in my life's experiences and said, you would be really good at this. Why don't you try it? So at her behest, I actually went and became a peer career advisor at Thunderbird in my third semester of school. And so being a peer career advisor or a coach to first year students was like the most interesting thing in my life, right? It was that moment in time that I was in the flow state, right? Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, the old Hungarian psychologist talks about this is when you get into the flow state, 
you're in a place where the rest of the world just shuts off. And I would do that for hours and hours and hours every night at school. And I would coach students from around the world. And it was at that moment that I was like, I lose track of time. I love doing this so much. I don't even care if I make money. Right. So that was the time that it really kind of evolved for me. And I went from being an operations guy into kind of a human development psychology guy. So having that experience was transformational for me in a lot of different ways. And so it just kind of worked itself forward where uh, I followed the herd after the MBA, I ended up working at Banner Health as a director of talent sourcing, and I got to do kind of the psychology aspect or the, the fit aspect of bringing a person into the organization. Um, I got to do that there for a couple of years, but what I realized was that bringing a person into the organization and then not being able to see them thrive or be able to stay connected to them really bothered me. Mm. And I wanted to be able to stay connected to the person in a more personal level. And so that's why in late 2011, early 2012, I made the transition to be able to run my own practice um, because I wanted to really be engaged with the person at a deep level, not just bring them into the organization and then never see them again. Right? That was really, really hard for me. Um, and so the, the subsequent years after that have just been about growing and developing and building the practice to where it is today. Nice. <clears throat> that's awesome. Flow state. Do you find yourself in flow state very often, Centauri? Uh, as you said that. Um, when I write, yes, um, back when I was writing, so any time that I have to produce content, um, absolutely. What about when you're on stage? Uh, I guess, yeah, I do enjoy that. I, yeah. think it's, I think it's fun and it's very natural for me. So yeah, you're right, that would be another time that I'm in front of groups. Yeah. Yeah. Just for the folks that are listening, I, I follow Centauri on various social media channels. <laughs> and, I, and, and it's an important for, thing for me because I watch him travel around the United States and speak in front of very, very large groups. And I see people like Centaur, even George, a little bit, and I'm like, okay, these guys are doing really, really significant work in the community. That's inspiring to me, right? So watching you post those things and hearing your story kind of through your journey, whether it's writing or whether it's speaking, means a lot because it inspires folks all around you, even yeah. if you don't know it. Thanks. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Thanks for all your work, Centauri. <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> give me those three things that CEOs regret the most. It was, I wish I wouldn't have worked for money. So working for money. Or too much money. Too much, yeah. yeah. Focusing too much on working for money versus other things. Yeah, they wish they would have. Number two is to spend more time with his or her families. Mm -hmm. Right, big one, because we seem to put those things on the back burner sometimes in our respective worlds. And number three is they wish they would have started their own businesses. Right. So that is, from a CEO's perspective, and those are big time companies, CEOs, right? You said it was Fortune 500? Yep. So, I mean, it seems like one of the common themes of the show uh, is people striving to be happy. It's what is it that, that connects all people? What is it that makes us happy? Um, and certainly for CEOs, that, that's all fine and well, but what about for employees? Mm. You know, just which is what 99% of you know, the, the, the American public. Um, and one of the themes that has come up a couple of times is people have been taught recently to look for your purpose. Go find your purpose. Don't stop working until you find your purpose. And what we talked to Brian more about is perhaps it makes more sense to find your impact first. And then once you're really, really good at something, it will become purposeful work. Mm, fair. What do you think about that? And, and, and just give your advice to just regular folks like me and Centauri that are 
you know, have regular jobs. I would say that the both of you are less than regular. You're very irregular, but you're in an extraordinary good way, right? So I appreciate both of you in that context. Um, if you haven't watched Robert Waldinger's TED Talk, um, his work through the Harvard study of adult development, mm -hmm. um, if you've seen it, fantastic. If you haven't, please watch it. Uh, 15 minutes of time about essentially a 75 plus year study. You've seen it, George? We talked about we that. We talked about it, yes. okay, for sure. Right, so fantastic. So it just what we've learned through all of this is that um, relationships matter most, right? And so when you think about the average person who's looking for engagement first, really think about who the, the five people around you are and remember that you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with, right? So who are those people and are they helping you to grow and to develop into what you're going to become next, whatever that is. So similar to what Brian is suggesting, um, I agree with that. If a person has yet to uncover his or her life's mission or has yet to look for that purpose, so mission and purpose, I think, in this context are very, very similar. Um, I believe that what Brian is saying is correct. Get out there and take as, as much action in support of your life's mission and or purpose as you possibly can and really do have that impact in meaningful ways. So what I've tried to figure out as much as I can is what do we do to uncover the purpose Right? So if you don't know what it is, that's great. Go and take the action that's meaningful. But what I found is that persons who want to understand their mission, it's a very simple equation. If you look between age 15 and 30, there's probably a series or succession of challenges that you were encountering or that you went through repeatedly. Right around age 30, you're going to overcome them somehow. Right? And it always happens. Right? It's the quarter life crisis. And then it happens again when you're 50. So it's the midlife crisis. And this happens recurrently in all humans. It's what Joseph Campbell referred to as the hero's journey, right? So this old kind of mythological stuff, a lot of movies are based on it, but it happens to all of us right around age 30. So if a person can take some time for reflection and look at age 15 to 30 and say, what were the challenges that happened to me recurrently? Right around age 30, they probably overcame them somehow. What was the process that they utilized to overcome them? So the highest and best use of their time from age 30 to 50 is to help other people overcome that exact same challenge they had when they were younger, okay? So that's essentially what I'm doing with executives is I'm asking them a series of questions to assess and figure out what are those challenges? How did you overcome them? Who are you now helping overcome those exact same challenges? So if a person doesn't have access to that information, follow Brian's route, right? If there's something that they can do to gain access to that process and really uncover that for themselves, let's, let's take some time to invest in figuring that out. So what are some of those guiding questions that you ask CEOs to kind of parse it out? Sure. So there's really, really basic ones um, about, you know, what was the most difficult experience that you've had in your life? Um, and so, you know, George, you kind of asked a question earlier that was a little bit similar, right, in that context. I'll ask them about trips that they've taken internationally and any, any specific key learnings that they've had. I'll ask them about lessons that they've learned from their family. I'll ask them directly, what is the, the challenge and that happened to you recurrently? Um, what were some of your biggest wins or your major successes? Um, and we'll go through a series of questions that are about that. So I'm looking at big wins, major challenges, um, and things that they devoted a fair amount of time to. Right? So I'm looking for where did they choose to invest time? Right? So I can't always do this, but what I would love to do is be able to look at my clients' bank accounts. Right? If you really want to know what a person cares about, you look at where they're using their debit card. Mm. Like, it's that simple. But, but we don't think about that. Mm -hmm. But I don't always have access to those things. But the point being is that if you can look and see where did a person spend the majority of their time, what ends up happening is that you can then find patterns. Right? So there are patterns and challenges, there are patterns and wins, and there's patterns and time usage. 
And that's the really critical piece is you have to find those patterns in order to assess what the series of challenges are or what they might do next. There's classic Napoleon Hill in that, right? <clears throat> tell me where you spent your time, I'll tell you where you'd be in 15 years. Yeah. yeah. And obviously, that's certainly true. Yeah. There's a lot of truth to that. And I, that's where I think becoming the average of the five people we spend the most time with or figuring out what that is for you or developing a personal board of advisors or directors is really critical. Uh, because some persons tend to like the comfort or the family orientation that comes from a, maybe an old friend group, but what they really need to do in order to help the most number of people in society is to repurpose their time into a new friend group that actually advances them so that they can then help a larger number of people. That's no small feat for people, no. is it? No, but exactly, and it's not, it's tough. But the biggest thing that I've learned with helping executives is that we, we can set three-year goals, and that's fantastic, but the goals don't matter. My job as a coach is to get really nitty-gritty and tell them and help them through what are they doing every single day? What's the daily habit and ritual that if they employ it, they're going to be fantastic, like the goal just happens. So my job oftentimes is to create one or two week projects at the very beginning of the relationship with them that's something very small. Right? I use something called the five minute journal with many of my clients just to help them kind of track some of the things that they've been doing. If I can convince them for seven days in a row to enter material into the five-minute journal, and they do that, I know that then the following week I can give them an increasingly more difficult task and they'll do it because they felt comfortable with completing each step of the first week's exercise. So we can set very long-term goals and those things seem scary to an executive because they fear success and failure, but if I can get them to just devote 15, 30, or 60 minutes to something each day, they are going to have success. And when they don't? And when they don't, that's where we create accountability partners around them, whether it's a group of three, four, or five people that they report to every so often, um, or they build in specific consequences in their relationship with me, um, or they have to you know, come up with a list of consequences that get evoked. Hey, I have to go give X number of dollars to this charity that I was hoping to use on a family vacation. Right? We can create other consequences right, that would normally uh, we wouldn't want to use because I think positive reinforcement is way better than negative consequences but we try as much as possible to keep the positive reinforcement going. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, you, you, you said that in common knowledge for the average of uh, the five people we surround ourselves with, CEOs, who are those people that they surround themselves with? Is it family members, is it other CEOs, is it colleagues? Like, what do you typically see as the profile of the folks that are advising these folks? Mm -hmm. I would say that each, uh, there's a lot of uniqueness here. So we talked a little bit about personality assessments and I use something called the DISC, right? And so um, a person who's a D tends to associate with other uh, very, very well-known personalities, right? They like to be around other subject matter experts. So their five people are going to be other CEOs or other high-ranking people within the respective community, right? The I person, they tend to be a little bit more connected into the groups that are fun or interesting. So a little bit more diversity in groups, but a little bit more fun and interesting experiences. The S people tend to like to gravitate towards family, so their focus is actually going to be on their five people are family, or people that are somehow connected to family or very, very close friends. Right? C people are a little bit more um, introverted, a little bit more rule following, so they have a little bit more focus in on family than most. So it just depends on what their communication preferences or thinking preferences are. But I feel like in our society, there's a bigger movement towards all of those thinking or behavioral preferences wanting to be around other decision makers, people that are really advancing and moving forward, but I think it's really dependent on the person, what he or she needs to feel balanced. Got it. <clears throat> so
So to circle back to the conversation about you working with folks and trying to get them to spend five minutes a day or 10 minutes a day or however much time it might be, um, <clears throat> do you think that, why is it that people have such a hard time writing down, let's just talk about a gratitude journal because I'm confident that that's probably something that you do or something that you talk to people about. Why is it so hard to be consistent with journaling? A couple of things. Uh, number one is there's no immediate ROI in it, mm -hmm. right? But there's people tend in our society we're very immediate gratification based, <clears throat> and so because we know there's not a paycheck coming associated with the time being invested in that, it's very very hard to do it. That's a big one. Is they don't see how collecting that data for thirty days is actually going to trigger some very meaningful information down the road. Mm -hmm. And so every single day I enter information into a spreadsheet that I have, and then on the first of the month I have a three hour time block. And that allows me to look back at those previous 30 days to really assess what was happening in my world so that I can adjust my behavior in the next month. Now, the second thing is, is that certain communication preferences are hardwired pessimistically and certain communication styles are hardwired optimistically. So the folks who are I or S on the disk profile, they're very optimistic. They have no issue whatsoever with writing in the journal. Hmm. But if they're pessimistic, the D or the C folks, they have a tendency to not want to do it because they, they're so pessimistic about saying, if I key a bunch of information into this journal, what is it actually going to get me? Right? They, they struggle with that because their brain thinks of themselves as being less powerful than the environment around them. So it, it, there's a couple different factors, right? No ROI or the brain's hardwired pessimistically to stop them from doing it. Got it. <clears throat> and I know that you and I have talked in the past about the value of accountability. How, how does that play in? It's a big one, right? When you think of Patrick Lencioni's work in his book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, I think it's mm -hmm. uh, layer number two is accountability, right? First is trust and then accountability, I think, or I think maybe it's three. Uh, but it's a very, very important thing. And so that's why um, I try to drive a personal internal commitment from people. So at the very end of all of my meetings with them, okay, what are the three, four or five things that you're going to have accomplished by the time we meet again in two weeks? And they have to verbalize it to me and so if they verbalize it to me, the probability of them doing it is far, far higher, right? So if they fail to achieve those goals two weeks later or four weeks later, then we create other accountability metrics, right? We share those goals with other people so that they then feel accountable to themselves, to me, and to other persons. Because if they feel that they could potentially be shamed by, by not achieving that goal, by telling other people that they were going to achieve it and then not do it, mm -hmm that it could evoke a lot of Brene Brown shame, and we, they don't want that, right? They don't want to have to go back and say, hey, I said I was gonna do this and I didn't, mm. right? So accountability is huge. So I begin meetings with the discussion of the previous two weeks' wins and things that we said we were gonna do, discuss it, and then we always end the meetings with, these are the things we're going to do in the next couple weeks. So those goals are always top of mind. And then every three or four days, texts, emails, phone calls, how are you doing on this? Like, what's going on? Can you, do you need some help? Can I remove a barrier for you? Right? And just keep them moving to what's next. So that really goes to what truly motivates people. It's potential for gain or the fear for loss. And I suppose that you would put shame in fear for loss. Sure. Yeah. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And so people, people want to be accepted. We were talking about this you know, five minutes ago it is really important that they feel that. And so people fear failure in a very, very big way. Um, but I've also found that a lot of people fear success, right? Because in both situations, something is going to change. And we know that all generations, regardless, really, really dislike change. 
And so if there's a way for people to stay relatively consistent in their behavior over a period of time, they'll likely do whatever is necessary to stay consistent to not have to change. Okay, so we, we fear success, we fear failure somewhat at the same time. Keep that temperature. Right, my yep. uh, my my comfortable temperature is eighty five degrees. Right, right. If I go to ninety, I gotta cool it down a little bit. If I go to eighty five, I better warm it up a little bit. Yep. <clears throat> Yet everybody plays the lottery. <laughs> How does that work, right? Because <laughs> there's really not a lot of skin in the game other than a dollar. It's so Daniel Kahneman wrote a book called Thinking Fast mm -hmm. and Slow. Maybe did um, fantastic book. I, I bought it. It's really thick though. So I read it. So for everybody listening, it's a very tough read. It's technical, yeah. um, but it is a very, very important read to understand irrational behavior because humans are wildly irrational. And so as much as we like to portray ourselves in society as being rational, we are not rational. And so we tend to make the vast majority of our decisions based on irrationality and emotion. And so although we try to project you know, objectivity over subjectivity, it just really doesn't work that way. No, it sure doesn't. So we talked a little bit. So you, I want to go back to um, what we talked about previously about the, the idea of a personal board of directors. So recently, uh, wrote an article for Work for Good about this and talking to um, young professionals on saying like if you want to move up, you actually have to have a personal board of directors that advise you throughout your career, people that you can pick things off of, people that you're vulnerable with, mm -hmm. you can trust. What does that look like for CEOs, or what do you advise in that group for sure. anyone listening? Yeah, I don't think that it's all that different for, for more experienced folks than it is for young folks. It's about the, the executive and or the person that's climbing the ladder. Um, he or she just has to be really, really great at assessing where are they today, what's the baseline or the benchmark of where they're at today, and what is it that they're trying to achieve. And I feel like we get so immediate gratification focused in our society that we don't think of uh, chunks of time of investment in order to move to some bigger scale. future focus. No, we need to be able to be great at satisfying some, some short-term gratification mm -hmm. for the long-term investment, and we're just not great at it. So regardless of age, regardless of where you're at in your organization, set a baseline or a benchmark today very objectively about your skill set and about your life and about the five people you're spending a lot of time with, and set a goal. Set it, say, three years from now at the end of 2020, uh, these are the three or four things that I really, really want. And so it's the gap that exists between today and what you hope to be at some point three years from now that all persons are the same. So we can then employ a personal board of directors to make sure that we have the right people around us to teach us the skills or to create experiences for us that make those three-year goals very manageable and easy to achieve. But I think that's where people struggle is that they don't think about what do they need to do to find those persons and what do they need to do to engage them. Right? Do they take them to lunch or dinner? Do they find other ways to buy them gift cards and take them to ball games and stuff? They need to find some way to engage them um, in a very, very meaningful way, in a very recurrent way. Because what I've seen is that some folks, maybe a little bit younger, they'll say, hey, I've got this great board of advisors, but they only engage them twice a year. Yeah. Right? They don't do it very recurrently. They don't invite the person to dinner on a quarterly or every other month basis in a very meaningful way. And that's where I think the ball gets dropped is that they don't spend enough time in reflection to assess where they're at currently, and then thinking about very practically, who are these members of these boards of directors, and how are they going to teach me something valuable to get me to that longer term goal? And that's where I think the gap exists. I think it'd be great for you to plug it. Yeah, that's a tricky thing. <clears throat> it's uh, the journey of a thousand miles because of the single step. How do you eat an elephant? You gotta take small <laughs> bites, right? And that's why I appreciate yeah. 
you working and coaching people to just do five minutes at a time. You got to start small yeah. and then get in the, I don't know if habit is the best term, but maybe the rhythm of, of doing it on a consistent basis. For sure. So let's talk a little bit about fear because I know that that's certainly a, a, an area that, that you focus on is helping people overcome fear. What are people, what do you think Centauri is afraid of? Centauri, <laughs> from my estimates, it should be fun. is a high eye on the disc profile. My, this is my guess. So if you've ever taken, I'll send you the link to take it. Oh, okay. okay, so you can take it. But um, we should have done this in advance. <laughs> if you would have been thinking, Centauri. So I'll come back in like six months. We'll yes. Have a dialogue about this. We will redo it. Um, Only Centauri, though. Okay. <laughs> we don't want to dive into Georgia's. No one does that. <laughs> So I'm generalizing here because I, I've followed Centauri um, on social media, but I've not had a meaningful dialogue with them at a deep level to really know this. So I'm generalizing in some context. Um, but what I've seen via social media is a high eye person, which is an extrovert who's people-oriented and very, very optimistic, very, very positive, use, um, use the environment around him as though it is there to serve him in some capacity. So these persons, when negotiating or conflicting, they're very much about win-win uh, resolution and collaboration, finding ways to get to win-win with groups, right? And that's really super important. Now, the thing that they fear, quote unquote, um, is the fear of social rejection, right? And so there's this thing for a high person that they're going to tend to say yes to a lot of things, um, even when they shouldn't, right? So they're trying to maintain the relationship because they feel that if they say no, going to ruin the relationship in the short term and they're not going to be able to leverage or maintain the relationship with that person long term. Now that may or may not describe Centauri, that's the typical high I thing. Um, so I'm very, very cognizant of that fear when I have a client who is a high I in the disc profile because I know that in order for them to accomplish their goals, they have to be great at saying no to certain things that are not in support of their life's work. And so that's the hardest part is to get them to say no to somebody because they fear that rejection so deeply. That's an example of that, the CEO. With the CEO, they tend to take too many coffee, lunch, or dinner meetings that are of no value to their business or to themselves, right? Or they take meetings internal to the organization, or they say yes to projects internal to an organization that are of no value to the business. So it's more about time distribution than anything yeah. else. So they spend a lot of time doing things that aren't actually helping them to advance the mission, whether of the business or of themselves. So they hang out with friends that are adding no value to them, projects internally, whatever. It's, it comes down to they want approval from persons, and so they, they do and say things that are seeking approval as opposed to doing say things that really are what's advancing the person or the business. So again, I ask, how receptive are people to hearing that message? They're not. No. So, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> what percentage is zero? <laughs> so, the others are the deep person tends to fear, fear being taken advantage of or vulnerability, and so they don't release a whole lot about themselves. I person, social rejection. S is they fear loss of long-term security. Uh, so basically they don't want to disrupt anything that could potentially take away security for their family financially uh, or the way of life as, as, as it stands. And C people tend to fear criticism of their work product. And so again, there could be variations of all four of these together, and, and that's okay. Um, but my job is to, is to be in a place with that person very immersively to find a pattern. I know what their fear is, but then I need to find the pattern in the behavior, and then I need to have an open discussion with them about it. To say, as per your report, here is the things that it says as you fear social rejection, 
and the, time, the way you've distributed your time over the last two weeks have been in this, 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 and this, and you chose to not complete the tasks we talked about as being valuable for your development. And so then I would work with the person to try to figure out how do we cut that time out and repurpose it into things that they actually want to do long term because um, extrovert people oriented folks, they have a tendency later in life to, they've done a lot of wonderful things in their lives, they've done a lot of cool experiences, but what they tend to regret is that they took really, really short bursts of, of action, but they never sustained that action for a very long period of time, right. and they regret that, mm. right? So whereas a C person takes very, very long concerted effort action towards something, but they, they, they didn't do the things that were more risky. They didn't try things more currently on a day-to-day -day basis. So my job is to assess where they stand, get them to confront the fear, and be there to support them through that action. Right? Just um, last Saturday through Thursday, I was in Montana with a client, literally doing that exact same thing. Went up there, flew up there, was with this woman for five days with the, with the explicit intent, she's a high C, with the explicit intent of making sure that she felt comfortable with putting her work product out into the community in a way that they would accept it. That was very hard for her to do the work that she's doing and to put it out there for people to see and potentially criticize, but getting her safe and comfortable with that, um, I think by the time I left that we did that, and we'll find out in the next couple of weeks as she puts her product out there more readily, but being there with her in the moment was so critical. So with these leaders, how do you articulate understanding fear to bottom line? So how do you say, all right, you have to overcome this if you're going to be a better professional CEO? Or sure. um, so each of those respective communication styles has a different sales uh, pitch, if you will. So a high D person tends to like to be sold by knowing another subject matter expert did it. Mm. So if there's another subject matter expert around that person. Social proof. Social proof, right? The, the Influence Robert Shield Daily book, fantastic book if you haven't read it. Um, but they tend to like to know that another subject matter expert somehow in their sphere did it. And if I can find that data or proof and then show it to you, probability that you're going to do is far higher, mm. right? And so um, that's a big one. And so the high eye persons, right, they tend to be sold by flashy and showy products. And so if I can give them some new tool that moves them in the direction of, of confronting that fear, the probability of them doing it is great. With the S persons, if I can get their family members on board and get them to support what it is that I would like the, the person to do, and I've had lots of conversations with spouses and sometimes even with children uh, because the client has allowed me to have those conversations, um, then we've been able to create structures around the client to allow the family to also support and say, hey dad, you did this, or hey mom, you did this, or husband or wife or spouse, you did this, right? And that's very helpful. Uh, for the C persons, they tend to be very uh, much persuaded and convinced by logical linear data. And so if I can come up with a case study or a report and show it to them and say, if you do this, here's what you're going to get out of it, they're going to be on board. <laughs> That's not you. <laughs> Thanks, George, for that <laughs> professional assessment. <laughs> In my professional opinion. So why is it so hard for us to self-diagnose that? Is it that we don't mm. pay attention to it? Is it that... We have blind spots and I don't want to see them. Hmm. Uh, I don't know if I have a great answer for that. I, I don't think that as a society we it's do- It's fear. It's entirely. We're scared of it. <laughs> we, we certainly don't take enough time as a society for reflection. And we certainly don't have it built into our educational structures and systems to allow people to become very unique versions of themselves. So we don't allow for that open discussion. Um, I just was listening to a Lewis Howes podcast. He interviewed a lady named Dr. Shafali, and I might have mentioned this to you, George, by email. 
Um, but if you can, listeners, make sure you listen to this podcast because it's, it's fantastic. Um, she's a very, very big fan and support of um, a parenting style or method where we treat our children as sovereign beings, as opposed to trying to figure out a way to say, uh, this child is a, a, an extension of me. We try to figure out a way to get that child to be the most unique version of himself at an early age. And if we treat them as a sovereign being, they will then have a bigger propensity to treat others around them with that same sovereignty. And I think that's a very important point that we don't talk about much in our society. And if we did, we'd be in a much better place for people to recognize uh, the things that we do right or wrong. But because we have things like social media, we can send a lot of messaging out um, and sometimes hide behind the computer. Right? Nobody's really knowing that we're sending this via some sort of a keyboard. And we, because we're not with a person face-to-face -face and face-to-face -face interaction has lessened, there's less of that ability to pick up on nonverbal messaging and the, the way that a person feels hurt nonverbally. Mm -hmm. And so there's so many things that we're missing, right? Um, from not teaching sovereignty to our kids to not being able to pick up on nonverbal messaging, people hiding, hiding behind their computer screens. There's many things that are happening that are not giving us the ability to connect to people at a deep level. Got it. All right. So, and all that very much makes sense to me and resonates with me. And that's the reason that Emily and I are trying to help James be the best James that he can be, who's my 11 month son. Okay, great. 11 month old son. <laughs> uh, anyway, so your advice to the folks that are listening that maybe will never engage professional coach either because of means or time, whatever. Can they take a DISC profile on their own? Can they, once they've taken it, understand how to process the results? Um, there are complimentary assessments on the web that are available. There are quite a few of them out or there. Or is that a terribly stupid question? No, 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 that's great. Um, so I think that the DISC and emotional intelligence are a little bit different, right? So the DISC is looking at the hows and the whats of human communication. Uh, the motivators piece that I help people with is really the why of communication. But emotional intelligence is kind of a separate assessment, and there are free assessments on the web that you can take, so just do a quick search and you'll find some. But what I've found is that the vast majority of folks that I interact with have the biggest trouble with self-regulation. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is that they, through frustration, sadness, or whatever, they end up projecting a lot of the bad stuff that they're going through in life onto their families or onto their workers, right? people that are connected to them somehow. And so I feel like we would be in a much, much better place as a society if we could teach or somehow drive empathy, right, through teaching self-regulation. For sure. And we just we just don't talk about that a whole lot, right? So do you have the ability to bite your tongue in the short term? Or do you have the ability to walk out the door and go for a walk and clear your head? Or do you practice specific yoga meditation or breathing techniques in the moment when you're feeling frustrated? And sometimes we'll have to teach those things to people. Or I've got clients where I have to help them with public speaking and we'll practice breathing techniques or power poses uh, before they go into the presentation just so that they feel that they can self-regulate their heart rate or their emotions as they're walking into a difficult scenario or situation. Got it. That's awesome. All right. So I, 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 I very much appreciate that. And, and I agree that the more people can focus on self-regulating, then the better off we will be. I was telling Centauri that uh, my wife and I, with James, our 11 month old, traveled to New York and then back over the Labor Day weekend. And that's no small feat, having an 11 month old on an airplane, right? And we helped together, I would say, really well. When I got off, there were two people, like in their 50s or 60s, screaming at each other. And I felt so bad because people just are not necessarily able to 
deal with their frustrations that they've got going on in yep. their own head and yep. then the other person because we all have our own stuff right. we do. but to be able to to uh, match that would be a, a very valuable thing yes. so so I know that it's been an incredible 10 years for you you've gone through a lot but now you've come on on the other end and you are uh, a very successful speaker and consultant. What does the future hold? What What are your goals? Where are you going? Yeah. Uh, some of those things I, I don't know if I entirely know exactly what the future holds. Right today, as it stands, I speak nationally on a variety of topics related to uh, the DISC or emotional intelligence or executive branding, uh, having difficult conversations, leading through change and change management. There's a wide variety of topics that I've helped organizations or persons with that I then get to travel um, and speak about engaging millennials, which I think Centauri gets to talk about too. Um, I work with obviously a lot of executives nationally one-to-one for three, six, or 12 months to help them through whatever they're going through. Uh, work with teams to make sure that they're receiving the appropriate training and communication, focusing on the right strategic objectives, um, engaging their employees effectively. So I see those three service lines continuing into the future. Um, I have been working on a book that will essentially talk about my process that I utilize with, with executives and will include quite a few stories of my executives with their approval, of course, um, and just kind of giving a little bit of the hard psychological data behind why this process is important, but also then telling how each step of that process through the lens of a client has been impactful or effective, like what has actually changed. Right? When you talk from, about moving from awareness to action, I'm very much that guy. Um, where I want to say, okay, here's the psychological support to this, here's what we're actually doing, and here's the impact that it's had on people. So the book is going to be a big thing for me probably next year to get that out and get that published. Um, another thing that's big, we were talking about this before we got on the show, is I want to launch a podcast as well uh, and be in a place where uh, I can do a little bit more to help people become the most unique versions of themselves. So having that come out probably in the next couple of months where I can be interviewing great folks like you guys do, um, telling a little bit more of the stories of my clients and honestly and sharing some of these best practices um, because as I was mentioning this entire before we got on the show I believe that there should be everybody should have an equal chance to be unequal right we should all be given roughly the same access to resources in order to find a way to become the most unique version of ourselves and so I'm hoping that the three service lines continue um, launch a book launch a podcast um, a little bit more travel would be fun. I'm going to be in Vancouver this weekend, be in uh, Singapore in November. want to be able to, to, to ramp up the international travel next year, of course. Um, and then the goal is to, at some point in a few years down the road, uh, is to be able to um, have done such a great job is to charge $1 million per year per client. Right? Is that to have done so well at this or be so knowledgeable about this um, is that I have the capacity to make a million dollars per year per client. And that, that seems like way far out there, but it's a good thing for me to keep as a vision and to work towards because my mission is to unlock human potential and there's a lot of various ways that that happens. Um, so anything that I'm working on is going to be in support of that mission. But the ultimate goal is to, to be able to play with some very, very big people in our society. And if they have the money, be able to charge them a million bucks per year. Uh, but if they don't, they would have a podcast or a YouTube video or something where they can watch me talk about a specific topic and receive similar information. Why am I? I think it's a goal that's out there for me because I've watched other coaches uh, do it. So I know that it can happen because there are other coaches actually in Metro Phoenix that do it. So because I know other people have done it, I believe that it's possible. Um, and this person's also 20 years older than I am, right? So this person has a little bit more experience, obviously, than I do. 
So it's a good benchmark for me to say, hey, I'm right where I'm at, like this is how far I've come. Um, but I still feel that I have to work in two or three year buckets to be able to get to my mid 50s and maybe potentially charge that much. Then I know that I will have done well. Um, it fits my communication style, it fits what motivates me, it fits my life's experiences. So there's a lot more deep reasons we can go into in another conversation. Um, but that to me just happens to fit who I am and what I care about the most. That's awesome. And it'd be great to be able to say one million dollars. <laughs> Good job. I was waiting for that. Thank you. Thank you. You <laughs> <laughs> can always count on me to take it down to the lowest common denominator. That's why we love you. Yep. That's, <laughs> that's why you guys keep me around. So awesome. Uh, and Michael, the, uh, the, the name of the podcast, which we'll find soon. Yeah, so uh, both Google and Apple have just approved it as of yesterday. Nice. It's called Equal Chance to Be Unequal. Nice. And uh, so um, it's, I know there's a test episode out there as of today, um, but I'm going to need a couple weeks after I get back from travel to actually get some stuff out there and available. So anybody who's listening, you're welcome to, to check it out or look at my website because there will be some content on michaelssieber.com where you'll be able to see a bit more information about that as well. michaelssieber.com. Excellent. Santari, so, what have we forgotten to talk about today, sir? All my questions were answered. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Really Thank well you. done, Michael. Uh, what else would you like to share? If anything, we've shared a lot. I feel like we covered an awful lot of the things that, that we had talked about. I really appreciate both of your respective questions. Um, I don't think that there's anything else that I had you know, walked in thinking that we should discuss. So cool. I think we're good. Well, check it out, michaelssiever.com, and we will also list some other social media and stuff like that in the notes of the show. If you like what you heard, click, click subscribe. Feel free to share us on social media. Tell a friend about it. And as always, keep questioning because the struggle is real. <laughs>